these first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are typically referred to as the book of signs. Now, signs are meant to communicate something. If we're driving down a highway and a sign says, Connecticut, 15 miles, we know that in 15 miles we will be where? In Connecticut. The sign is pointing to something beyond itself. The sign itself is not Connecticut, but it's pointing to Connecticut. Sometimes people say that they're looking for a sign, whether it's in a relationship or even from God. And again, we're looking for something to point us in a direction. Many of us have talked about warning signs. You see those sorts of things in your car when the check engine light comes on. That's a warning sign. Some people talk about warning signs, behaviors or actions that reveal something about a person's character. Signs that if we paid more attention to them, maybe would have saved us some pain. And actually, this is the kind of sign, this is the kind of way that John is using this term, sign. The signs that we will come across as we work our way through these 12 chapters are actions and events that reveal something about the person performing them. And the person we're going to be confronted with throughout our time in these 12 chapters of John's gospel is Jesus of Nazareth. And so the, the title of our sermon series are, is The Signs of Christ. The signs that point to the person and work of Jesus, that reveal something about this person, Jesus, from Nazareth. Now, many of us have read John's gospel. Raise your hand if you've read John's gospel. Raise your hand if you've read it more than once. And so on and so forth. It's one of those books of the Bible that you can read over. I mean, all of the books of the Bible are like that. But John specifically, is. it's been said that it's, it's, it's shallow enough for a child to understand it, yet deep enough for us to read it and study it our entire lives. So my hope, as we study this particular gospel, and as you know, as you'll notice, it's a little bit different than the other three gospels. My hope is that we might encounter the person and work of Jesus week in and week out for the next six months, that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be strengthened in our faith and drawn into deeper communion with God. That's the goal. That's what we're looking for over these next six months. And so, like I said, the Gospel of John is a little bit different from the other three Gospels. So we're going to just talk a little bit of introduction right now uh, as to kind of get the lay of the land um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic gospels, meaning that they're coming from a similar perspective. They have a ton of overlap in language, stories, and even chronology, but John's gospel is different, and you notice it right away. Stylistically, John writes with a, a literary flair that you just don't get with the other three, but there's also a personal element to the gospel of John. You'll notice that he often inserts himself into the narrative. And while there is a debate as to which John is the author, if we go with the tradition of 2,000 years of church history, then we're reading the words of the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're reading the words of the disciple whom Jesus loved. The shape of the book is fascinating. John seems to focus on sevens a lot which makes sense because he even begins the book by alluding to the creation account of Genesis, which takes place over the course of seven days. There are seven signs throughout the first 12 chapters of the book. There are also seven I am statements um, where Jesus identifies himself with the covenant name of God found throughout the Old Testament. There are also seven titles 
attributed to Jesus in the first chapter that show up throughout the book. The point, John is offering his readers a complete picture of who this Jesus is. Right? Seven is the number of completion in the scriptures. And the entirety of the book, whether it be the titles of Christ, the signs he performs throughout the course of the narrative, the seven I am statements, his teachings, and ultimately his death and resurrection, they are all written down with one objective in mind. And that brings us to our text. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 20. Now, I know I said we'll be looking at only the first 12 chapters, but there will be some exceptions along the way. This morning being one of them, and Good Friday and Easter, we're going to dip into the latter chapters of John. So the beauty of John's gospel is that he tells us exactly what his goals are. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, referring to the signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life. See, faith and belief are, are, are themes that are going to show up throughout this gospel. And the interesting thing about the way John approaches faith and belief is he's very individual in how he talks about faith and belief. He's talking specifically in this book, which is a little bit different. When you read Paul, Paul's very into talking about the church. But John is talking to us personally. He's saying, what do you think about this man, Jesus? What do you believe about the person and work of the Christ? He is pushing us towards a personal relationship with Christ. That is a little bit of what's going on. That's a lot of bit of what's going on in John's gospel. And so it's a little bit different than, than some of the other books and passages that we might have looked like. And if you know me, if you've listened to me at all over the last couple of years, you know I like to talk about the corporate nature of Christianity, how, how important it is for us to be a people of God. But John is, is pushing me a little bit and helping me to also talk a little bit about the, the importance of our individual salvation, our individual belief, our individual faith. John deals with that a lot in this book. We're going to see it show up on numerous occasions. But before we talk about any of that, I want to zoom out a bit and look a little bit at the surrounding context of why he says what he says. And so, so here we are, John chapter 20, and, and what we're experiencing and what we're in the midst of is the resurrection of Jesus. He has risen from the dead. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and he's also appeared to a number other, uh, of his other disciples. They saw him. They saw him. The bodily resurrection, they saw him with their own eyes. And then in John chapter 20, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see him in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's like, I'm out. I know you guys saw him, and that's great, but I got to see him with my own eyes. I got to see him. I don't believe you, is what he's saying. 
And I will never believe it until I can lay my eyes on him personally and I can actually touch his flesh. Goes on. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, Jesus had a funny way of doing that after the resurrection. He just pops up. He just shows up and you're kind of like, well, where, where did this guy come from? Right? I don't know what that's about. Maybe that's like a resurrection body sort of thing. I have no idea. But, but he does it. And it's funny sometimes. Sometimes it's a little bit more serious, like in the situation we're dealing with. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Tom, believe. But Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A couple of things. Thomas, who's one of the 12, he wasn't with the rest of them when Jesus had appeared to them, right? So we know he doesn't see Jesus yet. And notice what he says. We talked about this, right? He says, I will never believe unless I see him. Now, I think it's interesting, right? For us, there's simply a period between verses 25 and 26. But for Thomas, it's eight days, right? It's eight days. So for eight days... Thomas is walking around in unbelief while the rest of his buddies, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They believe, and he's walking around in unbelief. I'm not sure what sort of point I'm trying to make, but that observation just kind of stood out to me. I was like, that's so interesting. Like for eight days, he just, he, he's clueless. And all his friends are like probably looking at him like, Thomas, come on, man. This is good stuff. Like, he's back. And he's probably like, you guys are crazy. You guys are nuts. Maybe we need to be patient. Maybe that's a little bit of what's happening here. Maybe we need to allow the Spirit to work in the lives of those around us who don't yet have eyes to see, right? Some of us can grow impatient with people who have not yet entrusted themselves to Christ. We're kind of like, let's go. Let's get it together here. Why are you taking so long? Forgetting how long it probably took us to finally realize our need for Christ. So maybe that's a little bit of what's happening here. I'm not sure, but it just popped out as I was reading. I'm like, eight days. That's a long time. It's a long time to just sit and just like not know what's going on while everyone around you knows exactly what's going on. And then when Jesus finally shows up and reveals himself to Thomas, he uses the very words of his unbelief to challenge him. And then he kind of pleads with him. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Or better, do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. I think the point is that God is just so gracious to us. Like, so gracious to us. Even in our stubbornness, he pleads with us. Be a believer. It's better. Trust me. Don't walk around not believing in me. Then verse 29, it says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I believe it's better to understand this as a statement rather than a question. Following one New Testament scholar, Don Carson, he says that, that this statement prepares the way for the beatitude that follows. And so, so it's not that John is, not that Jesus is asking a question, but he's, he's, just, he's just making a statement of fact. You have believed, you have believed because you've seen me. 
He's stating a fact. And then there is this blessing or this beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Few things going on here. First of all, the apostles and the disciples saw the resurrected Christ in person. So this is not an indictment on Thomas. I think often we read this and we're like, Thomas is an idiot. Right? Like doubting Thomas. It's, 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 like, a, it's like a euphemism that we use. Like we, we make fun of this guy. But that's how all of them believed. They all saw the resurrected Christ. So Thomas is just like them. He just happened to not be in the room that day. Like, he didn't, maybe he wasn't feeling well. Maybe he had COVID and he was in quarantine. I don't know. But he, he, he just didn't see it. And so we get, for, for like 2,000 years, we just get on this guy's case. Like, what a moron. He didn't believe. Like, that's just not true. That's just not true. He's just like all of them. They all saw him, and then they believed. Thomas just hadn't seen him yet. But then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's not saying, blessed are Mary Magdalene. He's not saying, blessed are all the others and not you, Thomas. He's saying, no, 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 you guys are in a different category. Blessed are all those who are going to believe yet have not had the experience of seeing me. Don Carson says this. He's a New Testament scholar, and I have a, I have a slide for this. He says, Jesus foresees a time when he will not provide the kind of tangible evidence afforded the beloved disciple and Thomas. In short, he will ascend to his father permanently, and all those who believe, us included, will do so without the benefit of having seen the resurrected Lord. In other words, faith looks a little bit different for us today than it did, than it did for those who witnessed the events of the cross and the resurrection. Why? Because we don't see it. We don't see it. And Jesus says there's a blessing in that. What does he mean by blessing? Well, this blessing that Jesus, Jesus speaks of is the same sort of blessing he speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, that list of beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are, you know, all those blessings. And why does this matter? Because this sort of blessing, if you remember anything from three and a half years ago when we did the Sermon on the Mount, many of you weren't even here for that, but I've talked about this, the sort of blessing that is being discussed in the Sermon on the Mount and the sort of blessing that's being discussed right here is a ground-up blessing, not a top-down blessing. It's the sort of blessing that we receive when we pattern our lives after the natural grains of creation. It's that swimming with the current sort of blessing. That if you live in a certain way, you will experience blessing. It's how God created the world to be. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with that? Right? It's different than like, right? It's not the blessing like on Christmas when you buy your kids Christmas presents. That you just give them gifts because it's, that's that top-down blessing. It's, it's the type of blessing where like if your son or daughter like mows the lawn every week and then they're able to buy like whatever it is for themselves because they earned it. There's like, there's this blessing that they are participating in because they've patterned their lives after the way God has created the world. I'm not saying this is salvation by works, lest that's what we think, right? That's not my point. My point is there is a way the world has been structured that if we pattern our lives after it, there's a blessing that just kind of bubbles up. Make sense? Like the book of Proverbs, if you will. What's the point? God's good creation requires that we trust him. 
even when we don't necessarily see or perceive any evidence of his presence. You guys catch that? God's good creation requires that we trust him, even when we don't necessarily see or perceive any evidence of his presence. This means that we obey, even when disobedience might appear or even actually be more practical. It means that we trust that the work of the Spirit is real and that praying actually draws us into deeper communion with God, even though it feels often like we're just talking to ourselves. It means believing what Scripture speaks about us, that we are holy, beautiful creations that are meant to reflect the image of God to the world around us, even when we feel worthless, dirty, and filled with shame. It's faith. It's faith without seeing the thing that we are entrusting ourselves to. And the grace that we have, as those who stand on this side of the resurrection, is that we have this gift of God's word and the indwelling presence of his spirit. And what we learn from his word is that the more we allow it to shape us and the more we allow it to dictate who we are and the more we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, the more our faith will increase and we will be drawn near to Christ. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He doesn't say faith comes by seeing. He says faith comes by hearing. And so God has structured the world in such a way that, that he's like, I'm not going to let you see it all, but you got to trust me. I'm not going to give you all the information up front, but you got to trust me. And you have to walk in faith. You have to follow me. And he says it's more blessed to live that way. And so there's something cool about this, right? Like we experience a blessing that the apostles, the 12, just didn't get. They just didn't get it. I don't, there's just something special about that. That God has this, this care and love and compassion for the church that has not yet even like, been born yet. At his resurrection, he's talking about us. You guys catch that? That's so wonderful. That's so wonderful that, that, that he had us in mind as he was having this conversation with Thomas. When he appeared out of thin air. He's having this conversation. He's, he's thinking about the church. He's thinking about the next 2,000 whatever years of the church that are going to continue. He's like, there's a blessing that they have. There's something special about that group of people. He's like, I love you guys. And, 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 and we, got, we had a lot of fun together. And, and I'm going to send to my father in, in a little bit. But there's something special about those who are coming after you. That should move us a little bit. And so, yeah, right, there's this extra blessing we get when we believe without seeing. And in so doing, we do experience God. We just do. That's how this works. And so, so as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John over the next six months, we're going to be challenged in our faith. We're going to be challenged to believe to entrust ourselves. We've talked about this word faith, right? We've had this conversation. It's not just this intellectual assent to to a set of ideas or propositions. It is an entrusting of our lives 
to the person and work of Christ. That's different. That's different than just reading a book and saying, yeah, I believe that. Cool. No, no, no. It's, it's actually patterning our lives after the person of Christ. That's what we mean when we say believe. And that's what Jesus means when he says believe. That's what Paul means when he says believes. It's not just an intellectual assent. It is an entrusting of our entire selves to the person and work of Christ. Which means that our belief is going to affect the way we make decisions. Our belief is going to affect the way we parent. Our belief is going to affect the way we relate to our spouses, the way we relate to our children, the way we relate to our bosses, our employees, those on the road, one another in church. It's going to affect everything, right? Because discipleship is not just like a a compartmentalized sort of thing. It's a holistic approach to, to, to shaping and forming us into the image of Christ in every facet of our lives. In every facet of our lives. And so that's what it means to believe. And, and the beauty of this, this trust and this belief and this faith is that it is a lifelong process. And, and, and those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a little bit, you know that there's something different about you back then than there is about you today. Like there's been changes in your life. You've grown. Hopefully you've grown in love. Hopefully you've grown in humility. See, see, the scary thing, and I'm, I'm on a tangent now, so we're just, you gotta, you got to roll with it. Hopefully, because what, what seems to happen a lot of times in, in some Christian circles is that, is that maturity and, and growth and, 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 and whatever, like, and holiness is equated to, like, knowledge of stuff, right? Like, like we know our theology, and, and because we know our theology, we, we tend to start growing more arrogant towards those who maybe don't know the theology that we think they should know. Right? Not even that they don't know, just they don't know our theology. And because they don't know our theology, they must be morons, right? Or they must be immature, at least. Like, we'll love them by sharing our beautiful theology. But no, that's not, like, that we would grow and mature in love and humility and care for our neighbors so that we would reflect the love of Christ to the world around us. I'm not saying we shouldn't know stuff. But I'm saying that if that knowledge is not producing love, then Paul talks about that as a clanging gong, right? Like, like a, a banging cymbal, right? It's, it's like sometimes when the kids like come up here after service and play on the drums. Like that's the kind of, it's beautiful. We love it. It's, right? It just warms all of our hearts. It's just lovely. I feel a little feisty today. I'm sorry. I got a little... Got a little Let's keep going, right? This brings us to John's purpose statement in verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What you're going to notice throughout our time is that John does this a lot, what he's doing right here. He takes a break from the story And he looks at the camera in the same way Ferris Bueller does throughout the movie to explain what's going on. This is called breaking the fourth wall in in the movie world. If that means anything to you, cool. If not, whatever. But the first thing John wants you to know is that there's more to the person of Jesus than what he's giving us. In fact, if you look at the last verse of the book in verse 25 of chapter 21, he says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John makes it clear that there's not a library large enough to account for all the things that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done. 
But then he says that the signs he has chosen to write down are there for an express purpose. He writes these things down, these signs, so that we might believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and that he is the son of God. And so right here, one, we get his purpose statement, which is, which is massively important. Like, this is what the entire book's about, that we might believe in Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he is the Son of God. But also, it kind of reveals to us who John is writing to. It seems like he's probably writing to Jews because he's using language that they would understand. The Christ, the Son of God. These are all Old Testament terms. But also, he writes, so that by believing these things, we might have faith. We might have life, excuse me. And so he wants us to know, and he's talking to us, and we know he's talking to us because Jesus seems to dictate that just a couple of verses prior, that that there's people who are going to believe without seeing, and that's us. We believe without seeing. And then he says that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing those things, you might have life. Now, there's a couple things I want to just talk about. There's a little bit of a debate as to whether John is talking to believers or he's talking to non-believers. I think the good answer here is both, right? He's talking to non-believers in the sense like, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know that he's the Christ or the Son of God, then you should read this book. Because what you're going to see is that all the stuff he's done point directly to this fact. Now, if you are a believer, you should read this book also because in so doing, your faith will be deepened and your relationship with Christ will be deepened and you'll be drawn near to him. And so it's a both and sort of statement, in my opinion. Now, there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages written about why that opinion might not be right or another opinion might be right, but I think it's safe for us to say like, hey, he's probably talking to both. Why not? And if he's not, we could at least pretend he is. Maybe not. Maybe that's, maybe that's bad hermeneutics. Disregard that. Um, This is the entire point of the book, that those who read it might believe and that those of us who already believe might believe more deeply and that by believing, we might experience the life of Christ, eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. John 4.14 says that if we drink of the water that he gives, it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5.24 says that if we believe in the one who sent him, we will have eternal life. John 6 says that he is the bread that comes from heaven that gives life. John 10, Jesus talks about how the thief comes to destroy and kill, but that he comes to bring abundant life. And there's more of those verses throughout the book. If you're not getting the point, John presents us with the Christ, the one who, if we entrust ourselves to him, we will experience eternal life. And the way John talks about eternal life is that it happens and starts now. Because often, we like to think of eternal life as something that is out there in the future, that when we die, we will enter eternal life. But that's not how John speaks of eternal life. That's not how the Bible speaks of eternal life. Our resurrection, new creation, eternal life begins here and now. What does that mean? 
that means that we are, are these, these, these conduits of, of new creation, and we talk about this all the time. So if you're bored of this, you can pretend to listen and, just, and, and check out. But I, I'd encourage you to keep, keep tracking with me. We are these conduits of, of new creation whereby the world catches a glimpse of God as we make our way through the world, as we love God and love neighbor, as we sacrificially serve one another in humility, in compassion, in mercy, and proclaim the good news of Jesus, we're experiencing eternal life in the here and now. That's how it works. Right? It's not simply fire insurance. I was talking about this with Scott Daly earlier today. It's not simply fire insurance. There's so much more to our salvation. And see, you know if it's only fire insurance for you if you haven't allowed it to really penetrate any other part of your life. And, and honestly, if that's all it is for you, then there's a trembling you should be experiencing. And I'm not saying that to, to be harsh. I'm saying that because, because if, if, this, if this good news, if this person, Jesus, has not affected your life, then there's a good chance you might not know the person that's being revealed here. And so that's just, like a, that's just a loving warning to, to recognize that if I'm only in this because I need a get-out-of-jail-free card then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the good news. You don't understand the words that are written down in this book. And you certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. Because it's going to affect our lives. It's going to radically change everything we are. Has to, has to. It's not a call to perfection. Unless that's what you're hearing. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to recognize our need for Christ on a daily basis. Our, our need to, to walk with the Spirit of God. To recognize that the Spirit of God is actually a person who's active in our lives. When we talk about the signs of Christ, what we learn is that all of them are driving toward something. In fact, the final sign in John 12 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But we know that the raising of Lazarus isn't the end of the story, but rather it foreshadows his own resurrection. And it is in the resurrection of Christ where the identity of Jesus is solidified and proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the great I Am. Right, we talked about this in our discipleship course, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was justified. And, and, and we had this conversation, well, whoa, Jesus needs to be justified? Well, no, Jesus, his resurrection proves that he is, in fact, who he said he was. Right? If Jesus never rose from the dead, then guess what? He's not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. But his resurrection is the point, and it proves who he is, and, and the implications are, are tremendous. Check out what it says in John chapter 20, verse 21. It says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The resurrection didn't stop with Jesus. 
but rather it was just the beginning. And now we have been filled with the resurrection life of the Spirit to go into the world, proclaim the goodness of God's kingdom in both word and deed, living our lives faithfully so that the world might see God. So that the world might see God. That's what he's getting at here. He's like, if you believe, then you are already participating in eternal life. You are already participating in the resurrection life, in the new creation life. And how do you participate? By loving me and loving neighbor. And by doing it sacrificially and humbly. Because he says, right, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, or in the same way the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's like, you see all the things I did? You see how I structured my life? You see how I lived for the sake of others and, and, and loving others and, and, and being holy and, and all these things? You see that? That's, that's how I'm sending you. That the Father sent me to do something, and, and so I want you to look at my life and now go and do likewise. That's what he's saying. That's what it means to believe. And that's what we're going to see laid out throughout these 12 chapters of John's gospel. That's what he's showing us. That's what he's teaching us. And so as we close our time this morning, what I want us to carry out of here throughout the course of this week and hopefully into our lives indefinitely is that the signs of Christ reveal who he is, the things he has done, the love he lavished upon his people throughout his earthly ministry, his resurrection, all of it flow out of who he is. And in breathing his spirit onto his disciples and in pouring out his spirit onto the church, we are now called to be signs of Christ. That's really the point. That we become the church filled with the spirit, a sign of Christ in this world, right? Even the word Christian, what does it mean? Little Christ. We embody the gospel. We embody the gospel. We love God. We love neighbor sacrificially, humbly, lifting up one another's needs. This is the point. This is what it's all driving towards. In the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 3, he must increase and we must decrease. We are to be about the king and his kingdom. We are signs that point beyond ourselves, right? We are not saying, hey, come look at Redeemer. That's not what we say. Our church is the best church ever. That's not what we say. We say, look at Christ. And in fact, more than we say look at Christ, we live so that others are forced to look at Christ. Where it's like they have no other option because as they're looking at you, all they see is this confusing picture of, of love and humility and grace. And you're like, yeah, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's the point. We point beyond ourselves. He must increase and we must decrease. And he increases when we humbly and sacrificially love God and neighbor and embody the life of Christ. Faith and belief in the Christ, the Son of God. That's the point. So that we might have life. And the life we receive becomes a life of love and witness so that others might experience the same life. That's what this is all about. That's what we're going to be tracking through for the next six months. Invite people. I pray that you would be challenged by it. I pray that in your community groups you would wrestle with these things. You would allow the word of God and the spirit of God to, to, to change your minds. 
to allow one another to speak into your life as you, as you wrestle with decisions, whether it's parenting decisions, whether it's situations in your marriage, whether it's how you engage at work, whatever the case may be. Let this be an opportunity for us to come face to face with the person and work of Jesus so that it changes us from the inside out and turns this community of faith into a sign of Christ so that others can look beyond this and see Jesus. That's my hope. That's my hope for the next six months. That's where we're going to be driving towards. My prayer is that we would just dig into it. If you're looking to kind of study along the way, there's this great little book that I've been reading called The, the Signs of the Messiah by Andreas Kostenberger. I'll put that out over the, um, the next week. It's just, it's a small book. It's not super dense, and it just kind of tracks a little bit about what we're going to be talking about as well, it's, and it's not like a major work, but I would encourage you to to do that if that's your thing. If not, like that's not the end of the world either. I'm also going to be sending out some resources on John 2 over the next week in a, on our weekly email. So if I don't do that, feel free to email me and say, John, where's the stuff? And, and I'll get it to you. But let me pray for us, and then we will uh, transition into the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love that you lavish upon us, Father. My prayer, Lord is that your spirit would be so alive in this place, Lord God, that we would just be so overwhelmed by your spirit that we would be moved to love, to mercy, to compassion, to humility, that the world might look at this place, at the people that represent Redeemer Fellowship, and that they would see you. Father, be with us now as we come to the Lord's table, Father. I pray that we would look to you and that we would be nourished by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.